so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. And so what I found with young people that I love is is reasons on our side. So when I come to them and talk to them about that, you go to church because you meet people who aren't like you. You go to church because older people have something to teach you. Younger people need you. When you say that argument, they're like, then I want that. I found it very easy to convince young people about the value of church. But, but the culture is pressing individualism. And from that grid, they sometimes look at a church and go, I don't know what this offers me. There's a lot of talk about those in their 20s and 30s, more commonly known as millennials. Stereotypes often pit these young adults as lazy and incompetent. But at the ERLC's national conference, a panel of trusted leaders spoke to the strengths of millennials while not overlooking their weaknesses. We hope you find this conversation helpful. We're uh, at the breakout about millennials, everyone. And uh, you think even that brief moment of sitting at a stoplight, it's intolerable to not check in online. Uh, So what's happened is what used to be in that place when you were laying in bed at night, it used to be you and God. And so it used to be a time for reflection on your life and prayer. Now, what's there? Just all manner of distraction. So that, that loss of reflection is leading them to not analyze their decisions that much. And we all know that chaotically made decisions are usually not the best. And so that concerns me about young people. What encourages me is I think we're in a culture that's becoming increasingly polarized and hostile. And and I think in the midst of that, young people are being pushed to figure out what do I really believe and what does that mean for my life? And I have a lot of optimism about young people that when they choose to follow Christ, they're going to have uh, some strength to that because they'll have to understand the cost of it socially in the way for some of us that lived in a a very culturally comfortable Christianity uh, didn't really have to deal with. Pastor Glenn, I'd like to hear some of your thoughts on that as well. You pastor a church that has a very large young adult ministry. Mm -hmm. So I'd love just to hear some of your thoughts on uh, your experience in pastoring millennials in terms of the positives and the negatives. The point, kind of picking up on what Ben was saying, with so much time online and so much in the gaming culture, there's a real disconnect between actions and consequences. Mm-hmm. In the game, if you mess up, you do over. You get another life. Uh, in life, if you mess up, you may not be able to hit the do over. And some of the saddest con- uh, conversations I've had have been with young adults and, and helping them understand that the line they have crossed now, we can't uncross. We can't fix now what's broken. And that's a very hard conversation for somebody that's 20-something years old to realize that sometimes life has those kind of consequences. Has that opened up some strong gospel that, conversations? That opens up a lot of, uh, of, of gospel conversations of, okay, we have to answer the questions that's being asked. 
And the question now is, what do you do from what do you do here? Mm-hmm. And so that that opens up a lot of chance. What what gives me uh, a lot of of hope, and, and, in, and in really, I, I had more fun working with millennials than anything. There's an honesty, and a um, they have the the most sensitive crapometer of, of anybody. <laughs> Russell's not in here, is he? My, uh, my, but, my, my but, wife has one okay, of those. Yeah, too. yeah. yeah uh, but it, it, because this is the most marketed to generation. Yeah. Uh, in the history of the world. And everybody that talks to them is trying to sell them something, pull something over on them, and, and they are on to that. And, but, buddy, when they recognize truth and they realize this will, this will stand the test of time, they, they'll make a strong stand on it. That's good. Now, Jackie, as a millennial yourself, where do you think millennials are misunderstood? It's important to understand our mission field if you want to engage millennials in culture. Where, where are their misunderstandings? Uh, I- I don't know. That might be because I'm a millennial. I think, um, I think what I, I think how I feel sometimes is kind of this condescending notion that millennials are more wicked than the previous generation. Um, I just think we're a lot more honest about our wickedness. (laughs) We're we're not afraid to be um, truthful about the things that we like or do not like. Um, But I do think, uh, especially in the social media age and the internet, I think it has given us cause to, I think walk in self-centeredness in a way that the previous generation probably didn't have the freedom to do because there was no internet. There was not cell phones, I suppose. And stuff like there were white pages and stuff like that. But, but I think the beauty of it is, is that as a millennial, I think we should affirm, okay, with the, with these options, how do we take these opportunities to like really drive the gospel into all types of communities? I think with, with social media, with internet, with our, crassness sometimes it's like i think we can be the ones who could bring the gospel to the ends of the earth in ways that people in the 50s couldn't right mm-hmm. so that's true now i, I noticed there's just kind of a big swipe that wants to classify all millennials together yeah. it'd be like ben if i said all white males who are 40 and it's like well there's all different kinds of white males yeah. who are 40 yeah. uh, jackie how can that be problematic for mission when we just want to make this category of just millennials yeah. as one people group. Yeah. It's it's always dangerous to generalize anybody because I think if you have these preconceived notions about who somebody is, then you can't navigate the nuance of who they are. And so I think I said nuance, oops. But it's one I, of our words. I love it. <laughs> it just describes what I just said. But I, I think it's just a dangerous thing. I think we have to get to know like there are elements to me being a millennial that I think is cross cultural, whether you're in Idaho or Chicago, but I think ultimately I am who I am. And so you you can't just group me in into this box because you don't understand. Mm-hmm. Like, JR, you pastor in a suburban context that's you know highly mobile. Uh, what considerations are you guys having to take as a church, as a local church, when it comes to how millennials respond to church? Yeah. Are you having to rethink or restructure anything yeah, based I, on that? You know, I, th- I think there are clearly some things we have to we do have to pay attention to contextualization issues. Are we answering the questions they're asking? Um, are we dealing with issues that matter to them? We mentioned the word authenticity. Millennials value authenticity, mercy, and justice. Issues of vocation, all these things. And so, but he, I think here's my here's my concern with all that is that uh, we we don't we don't do mercy and justice because we think that's appealing to millennials. We do mercy and justice because we're we're told to love justice, you know, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God and. We don't do authenticity because, well, that'll really appeal to the millennials because how inauthentic is that, right? I'm going to 
be authentic, to appeal to your desire for authenticity. We're authentic because we want to be <laughs> humble and we want to confess our sins to one another. We want to obey the scriptures. And, you know, we, we don't care about vocation because we think that's appealing to, to millennials. We care about vocation because God is a worker. We're made in his image. And so I think anytime uh, the consideration we want to take into account is let's look at the scripture and what is a faithful church? How do the people of God be the people of God? Because if, if that's not our motivation, then we've stopped being missionaries and ministers, and now we're just marketers. We're just trying to market ourselves and trying to p- appeal to what millennials like. For instance, we have, a, we have an art gallery at our church, and so we've had several installations at our church. We have another installation coming up soon. But our pastor of worship and arts didn't build this art gallery because think, I, I think that would really connect to millennials. Uh, we built that art gallery because we believe in truth and beauty and um, anything. I, I love it, Margaret uh, Robinson said. Any, anything that impresses beauty upon the human heart impress, impresses a sense of God upon the human heart. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's why we why we do the art thing. So I think those questions are good. There's certainly things we need to think through in our preaching, our teaching, community, all that. But I think we we need to instead of saying what considerations do we need to have about millennials, it's to ask the question, what would it be? What would it look like to faithfully be the people of God mm-hmm. in such a way that it becomes compelling? Yeah. I was going to ask if I could add something in on, on what they were saying. Yeah, like, please do. I thought the point you made was really good about. For, it's off-putting for me when I hear people say that, like, "Oh, the millennials are like this, or they are like that." Uh, I think the reason that we even kind of drew that line and made that name was because you go, okay, this is where technological changes were happening, but people are people. The same constructs are there, same brokenness, same image of God. It's all there, but you're looking at what's happening in the world they were brought up in, in these critical adolescent years that are influencing them. And that's, what's been interesting about this generation is you go, a lot's changed in their coming up years. And so for me, I've always found it more helpful to look at, what are some cultural shifts that have happened that we as older generations did that now these younger people are growing up into and how is it affecting them good or bad rather than saying, well, you guys all seem shallow. You're like, well, what is that? Like, well, you raised us, you know, like, uh, uh, so it's like, that's not a helpful way to have a conversation about this. It's more, here's the world you came up with and here's how that's affecting you. So I just thought that was worth mentioning. I don't know. Let's talk a little more local church, Ben. You have a neat perspective because you spend a lot of time as a campus ministry leading breakaway at Texas A&M. I mean, campus ministry is an understatement. It's like a campus ministry on Barry Bonds level steroids. I mean, kind of thing. Uh, so, but then now you're at Passion City Church, a very influential church in this country. Uh, so, what have you? How have you seen millennials' attitude towards the local church? Millennials who are already believers, yeah. from being in a pair church and now in a local church, are are they pro church? As we make a broad swipe towards millennials and, and yeah. what you're seeing so far, uh, you know, if you look at the numbers. They're, they can be disturbing because, you know, you look and go one out of four millennials say they're unaffiliated. Even the ones that say I are, we are affiliated, less than half attend on a weekly basis. And so you see that number and you go, okay, less of them are connected. You don't see necessarily this big drop off of we don't believe in God anymore. It's just I don't want to feel obligated to a group like your church. And, and when you look at kind of the numbers of what people are saying, and, and then in my experience with students too is – they're just not sure what this offers me. Mm-hmm. And some of that's a, a mixed up way of thinking about it because it's uh, Jean Twenge wrote a book about it where she was talking about in parts of the country where you see a rise in individualism, you see less church attendance because individualism is what's good for me. And that's the question I get most often for students. They'll come to me and say, well, I've got podcasts and I've got my friends 
And so I've got truth and I've got love. I got church. Why do I need you? And, and that's how they're asking it. But it's coming from a very individualistic deal. And so what I usually say back to them in that moment is say, well, man, just put a sign on your dorm room that has the name of your church and just say, nobody who's not your race or your education level or your uh, you know, socioeconomic background is allowed. I said, would you be offended by a church that said, hey, no one from this race, no one who doesn't make this amount of money, no one with this amount of education is allowed at this church? You'd probably pick at that church. I said, but you've done that. You've created your church with your friends, and, and you haven't kicked the homeless guy out. He just can't find you. Mm-hmm. So when you put it that way to them of, of going, having a consumer mentality when you come to church and saying, I don't see what this offers me, you know, that's not loving. And so what I found with young people that I love is, is reasons on our side. So when I come to them and talk to them about that, you go to church because you meet people who aren't like you. You go to church because older people have something to teach you. Younger people need you. When you say that argument, they're like, then I want that. I found it very easy to convince young people about the value of church. But, but the culture is pressing individualism. And from that grid, they sometimes look at a church and go, I don't know what this offers me. And maybe the last thing I'll say on that to stop is I would encourage pastors in here. Um, what I feel a lot of times when I walk into churches is if all the illustrations are about marriage and kids, you're saying to millennials who many of them aren't getting married till 28, 29 now, that this isn't for you. You know, if you went to a ministry and that never mentioned marriage or kids, you'd go, well, I guess I'm at a singles ministry. This isn't my thing. But if you go to a church and they never talk about the challenges of high school or of middle school or of being single and in your 20s, if that never is an illustration or an application, you're saying to millennials, this isn't your thing. And so I would challenge you, have a space for That's that. helpful. Now, Pastor Glenn, you have a young adult ministry. If those who aren't familiar, Kairos, Kairos, which is one of the you know, most influential young adult ministries in the city, if not the most. Well, some of the pushback you'll hear in just church conversation is that having these isolated ministries that are focused on a demographic can be problematic when it comes to connecting folks to the rest of the local church. Mm-hmm. So you might have some folks here that are saying, we want to start a college ministry or we want to start a young adult ministry, but how do we make sure they're connected to the church as a whole and they're not just their own entity off to the side? What has your experience well, been like? Well, first of all, I didn't start it. Um, I've, been, I've been at Brentwood Church 25 years, uh, and the, the young adults that started it, I literally knew when, when they were born, a lot of them. And they came to me and said, we want to do a lot of what they had seen in, in their college experience in Texas. And we want to do the same thing in Nashville. I said, great, I'll help you get it started. I don't have time to do it. And 11 years later, I was still the main teacher of it. Uh, famous last words. Uh, but um, the, the thing that we found out was uh, they love having opportunities to talk to their grandparents. Now, not their, not their biological grandparents because they don't live in the same city. But they love hanging out with our senior adults. And so we connected a thing called Senior Link. Uh, they love talking to uh, professionals who had been in their career for several years. And so we started professional groups where you would have a CEO or a uh, leading attorney or something talking about how he or she did their career. And we had those kind of breakout groups to connect these people. And we would tell them, you have all the resources of this congregation that are available to you Mm. that are here to help you uh, find out who you are and and, and become who Christ has called you to be. That's good. So so making those kind of connections. And then what we found out was that the strongest protectors of Kairos were our senior adults. That's awesome. So they, they would stand up at the church business meetings and wouldn't let anybody mess with Kairos. 
because they knew the kids. That's what they would say. I know these people. and That's what local church so, families should look like. That's, right? that's, that's, that's fantastic. And we end up, because, because a lot of them would show up mad at dad, have dysfunctional families, and, and the role of the church, as it was in the first century, is to recreate that family structure. That's good. Is to give them fathers and mothers and um, uh, grandparents all in the faith. So when a young lady starts dating, there is somebody vetting that young man. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was a chaplain for the police department. I would tell the guys, listen, I'll get your fingerprint. I'll run the background check. It doesn't hurt my, my feelings at all to do that. But I just. <laughs> you know. I love that. So. Well, let's switch gears to local church and there's some more social issues. That's very you know hot button issue with millennials and the church and our mission, especially. Jackie, just in my experience, the pastor of many millennials, the not of many millennial, you know what I mean? The the LGBT just issue in general. I know it's more than an issue, but it's the reality of what the LGBT community has become in America has become a really complicated issue for millennial pastors. And I've noticed that a lot of it is not because we're wavering on what the scriptures say, not that we're wavering on biblical marriage, but just as human beings, it can be really hard because our generation, a lot more than my parents' generation, we actually know we have friends and family members who are gay and coworkers who who are gay. So it just makes it really difficult, not in terms of what we believe, but to talk about it. Can you help us just, just to think about how to navigate through conversations with millennials about LGBT issues? Yeah, I think, um, I think it's, it's, it's becoming very difficult to be a Christian nowadays, which is beautiful, I think. Um, I think it's good for us. But I think um, even conversations I've had with uh, a young lady I know who went to, I think she's in Yale, and she was saying how it's so much pressure from even the professors to ascribe to feminism and gender-neutral ideals and how um, on the first day of class, everybody stood up, said their name, and what pronoun they want to be referred to. And so she was like, it was people in the class who wanted to be referred to by they, not he or she. And she was like, it's like the first day of school. And (laughs) this is like the way I'm being um, introduced. And so I think it's, it's hard. But I think as pastors, as millennials, as students, I think we have to recognize that we are exiles. And I think a part of being an exile is that we're going to feel the tension of being in a place that does not like us, that does not want our truth, that does not want to hear about God being Lord or Savior or good or great. Um, but I think as in being an exile, we have to be okay with the fact that we won't be liked. And I think that's a major idol in America is the fear of man. I think we are built on wanting the praise and acceptance of people. And so I think we cannot lean into any temptation to be afraid of any anybody if we want to be honest about the gospel um the gospel is going to be offensive and so i think we simply it's very simple we have to fear god more mm-hmm. if we fear him more and we love him more then outwardly we will begin to love people more where we can overcome the fear of how they may respond in hopes that they'll hear the truth and repent and believe and so i think ultimately it's just like do we love jesus or not you know mm-hmm. You know what I found out? What it wasn't so much the, the 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 gay lesbian issue as it was how we treat gays and lesbians. Mm-hmm. So um, they understood that I was that that what what I believed. What their issue with the church was is that you're mean to these people. Mm-hmm. And so we tried to help understand that hospitality once again. Is the is the beginning point for evangelism and discipleship? That when I sit down and get to know you as a person and hear your story, 
And then that's where it, uh, that, that conversation can happen. And as they learn to trust you and that, that you do love them for their best sake, uh, that, that you will, you will earn the hearing. And can, Jared, can, oh, go ahead. Something? I'm sorry. You're fine. Hey, you're up here. Place. Talk. Um, but I, I think one thing, uh, in my conversations, in my discipleship, I think something that really, that I think millennials need to learn is the authority of scripture. Mm-hmm. I think they, they, I think they have to be convinced that what God says is true, is true. Um, because no conversation even makes sense or it just doesn't matter if they don't see that this is a God thing. If they think it's just a Christian community thing or just you just want to make people moral or you just want to make people like these robots, it's like, no, this is, this is a God thing. And I think when they feel the weight of it being a God thing, then they know um, that they should ascribe to it or it's like a problem. Mm-hmm. You know? so, yeah. JR, what advice would you give to folks that are just really wrestling with how to consider millennials when they're preaching on sexual ethics? I, I just, I, they're, they're on my mind when I'm, when I'm writing a sermon. I'm, we're starting a series next month on, on gender and on sexual ethics. And I'm thinking about the whole time going, wow, our 20 somethings are not, some of them are not going to like this because their best friend, you know, their classmate, you know, is gay and they think they're the greatest person in the world and they probably are a really nice person. So it's just going to be difficult sometimes. What does that process look like for you and what advice would you give to pastors who want to consider millennials without in any way, shape, or form neglecting what the scriptures teach? Yeah. Well, first, let your people know you're going to be teaching on it. I think that's important. No one wants to show up and get surprised. That's a great thought. Uh, So let them know that. And I taught a two-week series just recently at our church on Jesus, same-sex marriage and human flourishing. And I think one of of the things that helped as as I taught through it um, was helping our people understand just the anatomy of sin in general, that it is every sin, all sin is a rebellion against God's design and his decree. And the, the minute you can almost dethrone this, this sin as the, as the major league sin and realize that there, there's, a, there's a, an, almost a normalcy to, to human sin where right. it's a very abnormal thing, but we, we all have in, in one way or another rejected God's decree and rejected God's design. And, and when you kind of bring it down to the level of, hey, this, this is something we all have to repent of. We all have to repent of our rebellion against God's decree and God's design. Um, I think another thing for us is we've tried to be careful that we, um, when it comes to, like, for instance, church discipline, if the only sin you preach against is the sin of, of uh, is sexual immorality, then I think that's whenever people who struggle with sexual immorality feel like they're being targeted. Uh, but when you preach equally on sins of pride and greed and other sins and people begin to realize I'm not, I don't have a target on me here. Uh, the issue is not stamping out a particular sin. The issue is people being conformed to the image of Jesus mm-hmm. and, and really stepping into the full humanity of who he is. And I, I'll just say one other thing on this and I don't have the silver bullet on any of this stuff, but I think a robust Trinitarianism is really key when we're dealing with these issues of sexuality. Um, when you look at just when Adam and Eve are, put in the garden, in, in God's image. Um, the, the beauty of the Trinity uh, is God, the Father, in a face-to-face relationship with God, the Son, and the love between the Father and the Son being so real as to be made concrete in the third person of the Trinity, this beautiful picture of the Trinity. 
And God puts Adam and Eve in the garden and says, I, I, they're here to bear my image, right? So that Adam and Eve can be in a face-to-face relationship distinct from one another, yet one with each other. And the love between them being so real as to be concretized in another human being, so the family begins to round out the image of the Trinity. The family becomes an icon of the Trinity. That's not possible in a same-sex relationship. And so the very purpose for our being to reflect this triune God um, now, obviously, those it gets complicated with infertility, and that doesn't mean people who are single can't bear the image of God, but it means that as God's designed this thing. So we get back to the design of God, and the decree of God, and begin to paint. Uh, th- that is m- more of a picture of we're, we're called to express this and, and reflect and, re- and, and image forth this beautiful God of love and self-donating love. And uh, the more you can begin to paint it more of a, reflecting this beauty instead of stopping that sin, yeah. um, I think you, you, you frame it in the way the scriptures frame it. Ben, how do you speak to college students about sexual ethics? Is it a regular thing that you do? Is it, when you were at A&M, I'm asking like four questions at once, but yeah, right. was, it, was, it a, yeah, was it a yearly thing? And if it was, so what, what did it look like? Well, I, I tried to let it come up as an application point in a lot of places. So it wasn't just like, well, once a year, we just roll out the sex talk. You know? um, it is funny you know, because we would meet on campus and rotate around. The two talks I did that were entitled, like, sex was the title of them. One was on Kyle Field, the football field, and one was on the front lawn of the university, which I didn't mean to make the most public venues where we talked about that. But we did call them sex on Kyle Field and sex on the front lawn. We just thought, why not? Let's just <laughs> embrace what, we, what we've done. But um, there's a million things you could say about it. What I would say that could maybe be helpful in this moment is, one of the things that's helped me is I think sometimes when we talk about sexuality, and, and you brought it up, JR, is we want to like, uh, y'all got to stop doing that or get us away from what these people are doing. And, and uh, it can almost become an us versus them conversation. And so I've, I've heard sermons where, whether it be about homosexuality or pornography or a lot of things, the way, the tone that's being presented, if you struggle with anything sexually in the crowd, the message to you is, I am not welcome to talk about what I'm dealing with here. And I just keep going back personally to, you know, in Luke, Jesus, the word compassion, that deep movement inside for him, a verb always came out of that. And he saw the crowd. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And he had compassion on them. So he taught them many things. And so I think for us as ministers and leaders, we go, is my teaching to stop? Or shut people down? Or does compassion drive that teaching? Does my love for that kid who's broken sexually come out in every word I say? Because if they can hear you weep over their brokenness, they'll, right. they'll believe you really care. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then they'll want to hear what you have to say. And I think when you're talking to millennials, how do you talk to your friends about sexual issues where you disagree? I think that's the same thing of going, you know, I think of the statue of Jan Hus in Prague. His quote under him says, love and desire the truth for everybody. And I think for millennials, sometimes we present them that you got to stand up for truth, meaning like against those people, when rather it's love for them that desires the truth for everybody. And I think if you can present that to a millennial audience, it's my, it's my love for you that makes you, me want you to know the truth of how beautiful sex can be when it's fit in God's design. I think that can motivate them to to have those hard conversations where they tell somebody, I disagree with the way you're expressing sexuality. I think Ben brings up an important point. I mean, I grew up in a, in a small little Southern Baptist church where I was hold, held over hell like a marshmallow every Sunday. 
And, uh, you know, finally somebody would go down and have a decision just so the rest of us could go home. Um, <laughs> but, so, so I grew up knowing what not to do. Here are all the things that, that we And so we'd get together and thank God we hadn't done anything all week. But um, to put forth a positive image, Jesus is, is God's yes to us. And he calls out the yes that he has in us. And what we're, what we're saying is, you know, in, in our teaching on sexuality is don't ever do that. We're saying that there is a beautiful place and a beautiful time. And God has given us this language to, for a husband to tell his wife, I love you as I love no other. And for a wife to tell her husband, I love you as I love no other in a way that words can't. And there's going to come a time when you as a, as a young person will want to be able to say to that person, I'm giving you my best self. That moment is coming. You have a future. And I want you to be able to give your best yes in that moment. JR, millennials are definitely approaching family differently. Uh, you talked about you know, getting married later in life, married 28, 29, into their 30s. It's a common thing in 2016. Uh, how has that affected your church programming and, and your approach to ministry, seeing uh, just much more of, I guess, extended singleness and delayed marriage happening in, in the culture where you live? Well, one, we, we don't, what we try to do is integrate the generations in our church. We're a multi-generational church, so we don't necessarily program things based on people's life stage or anything like that. So we do have a children's ministry and a student ministry, but we have life groups where there are uh, young families and single people and divorcees and empty nesters and uh, on and on. And they're really trying to order their everyday lives together around Jesus and his mission. And, and so we don't feel like we're, we're letting that dictate how we program things. Uh, one of the things that we, we really believe is essential and important is that uh, these people who are delaying marriage, uh, they need to see a couple in our church like Don and Mary Beth Austin have been married 67 years. Right. I told them the other day, Don, I've been married 21 years. He said, that's a great start. Um, <laughs> married 67 years. And for almost the entirety of that marriage, she's been ill and he's taken care of her. And um, I don't, I don't want to program something for our young men to learn how to be good husbands. I, I want to put them in a life group with Don and Mary Beth Austin. I, love that. I want to see them be able to model for them to say, here's what it means to really love someone. In a post-covenantal age, man, it's so important that we, we see this. Someone who's saying, I, I'm actually going to lay my life down for you. And I, I'm going to close off all other options. And I, that's one of the problems with delayed. I think one of the motivations of delayed relationships, delayed marriage, is there's such a fear of closing off our options. So I've got to find the perfect this or the perfect that. And because we close off these options, it's almost like I think Mark Sayer said it. We, we go to the mall and window shop and walk away empty-handed. You know, we, we, we never really commit to something. And so being able to have people in your church like that, that these millennials can look at and say, uh, he did not kill his joy when he married that woman, mm-hmm. even in her sickness. And over 67 years, being married to her has actually formed him as a person and as a human being. I'm actually robbing myself of my own human formation and flourishing by living as a consumer who's cl- who doesn't want to close off all my options. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's better than us trying to, and I'm not, I'm not saying programming things is wrong, but there, there are a lot of sermons preached in your church. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 We don't preach most of them. Right. <laughs> That's a good word. Now, Andy Stanley last night had a great conversation with Russell Moore where I think people were stretched different directions in terms of how I think about church and, and ministry. And one of the things that Andy mentioned was that he does not preach about abortion from the pulpit. He lets the small groups handle that, which that's interesting to me because now you're trusting a, you know, a small group leader to handle such a delicate, tough question, which that was an interesting approach. Uh, but what I've noticed with millennials is that they're passionate about things like sex trafficking. I mean, red X's on your hand, and they'll talk about that from the pulpit all day long. Uh, well, passionate about the refugee crisis, about hunger, about orphan care. But when it comes to abortion, they might have strong opinions, but maybe I'm wrong here based on my experience. But oftentimes they're silent when it comes to the issue. Jackie, what do you think about what Andy said last night? I don't know if you were in the room, but that he doesn't preach on abortion from the pulpit is what he said. I was not always. And, 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 how, how, and how would you, how would you uh, talk to educate people on how, how to speak on this issue? Ew, that's a hard question. Um, that's why I gave it to you. Yeah. Is it? Uh, yeah. But you're great. Like oh, you're no, talking oh, about no. the Trinity and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> You know, people are great when they can talk about the Trinity. Um, I do not know. I, what If I was to assume, I would think, I, I think abortion has become normal to us. I think um, it's just not, a, it doesn't grieve us. I, I remember even in high school, I mean, that was just kind of a thing. Like, oh, I got pregnant, don't want to, I'm going to take the, you know, after pill. Like, even parents, like, my mother told me, like, if you get pregnant, you're going to have an abortion. So it was just like, that was, you know? And so I think because we don't feel the grief of it anymore, there's no need to talk about it. or There's no need to uh, pioneer some change that this is going to happen. And I think that's an outpouring of our just lack of love for dignity of, in human life. I think we don't see humans human life the way that God does um, in some ways. And so I just would think that the the lack of our conscience being soft in that area just has affected it. Because um, I think there, I don't know. I don't know. I think when you have friends who have had abortions, when you have probably had an abortion, when you know in your heart, you know, if I have a baby and I think this baby is inconvenient, I might go other routes. I think it lends itself to that. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm, sure. Yeah. So. There's definitely a selective justice to people's minds. And all those other issues are the impingement of, upon someone's freedom. And so yeah. slavery, someone's freedom is being stolen from them. They're being, you know, they're being objectified. And so when it comes to abortion, if you start speaking against abortion, now you're impinging upon my perceived freedoms. Yeah. And so this is not you trying to rescue someone from objectification or repression. You're actually trying to steal and rob away my freedom. And so... I think for some, some people, they just don't see abortion as a justice issue um, as much as they see it as a personal choice that they feel like maybe is being stolen from them. So, yeah. but, but you brought up a point earlier about if they just see us preaching on one type of sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Andy is right in that you don't want to become a one-issue pulpit. That, that, that if you talk about abortion then there are natural cultural reactions. That have, you can address abortion in the context of being pro-life. And our church is pro-life from conception to death. We're against the death penalty. Oh, yeah. But oh, boy. Here see, we that's, go. see, that's a pro-life issue. Now, millennial, that's consistent. Sure. But see, but if you're, if you're one Sunday, you're against abortion. Next Sunday, you're preaching the death penalty. Confusing. That that confuses them. We are pro-life. We are for you. We believe God created you 
to enjoy life, to, to enjoy his relationship with you, for you to enjoy your friends, and we are for that. And, uh, and the reason God is against sin is that it hurts you. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wounds you and keeps you from fulfilling that, that dream. Yeah, I, I believe that abortion is the most important social and justice issue of our day because I believe that everything else fuels from that. And the reason I believe in racial reconciliation and want to fight for that, the reason I care about sex trafficking, the reason I care about what is a just war and not a just war and, and the uses of force are all stem from the fact that I believe that life you know, begins at conception, that God knits babies together in their mother's womb so that, that every life is precious. So, so for, for me, I, I, we're not going to isolate it by itself, but we're going to make sure we're clear on it. But as we're being clear on it, we're also just as clear on the answers that are found in Christ for those who are thinking about an abortion, have already had one, have had three, have been the would, would-be father who went through an abortion with his girlfriend or whoever it might be. Uh, so, so I, and it's gonna, it, will draw, it, it will drive people away a little bit when you have that conversation. But just me personally, I think it's worth it. Uh, because I really do believe it's the greatest social justice issue of our time. That's just, that's just me. But, but that, that's, that's very helpful. Because when Andy, when Andy said, said that last night, I mean, some people gasp, but I would wonder outside of a sanctity of life stump sermon, how many people that wanted to be critical of Andy actually do preach on abortion regularly, or even if we should preach on it regularly, rather than, like you said, with sexual ethics, it coming up in the text as we preach expositionally through passages and things such as that. Now, you recently had an anniversary at your church. Is that, is that correct? 25th year. 25th year. Uh, so, I thought they were going to let me out on good behavior. but <laughs> I'm glad, I'm glad I gotta, you're... i got to finish when I started. Well, well I'm guess. thankful for 25 years in one local church. Yeah. I think that's fantastic. Cool. Uh, I, I would like to... Uh, just a couple more questions. JR, something I see in millennials often, too, is, is church hopping. I know everyone, every generation is guilty of that, but you see just a lack of commitment to a local church. Uh, 25 years in a local church is probably would make a millennial get anxiety. You know, to think about having to be there for, for that long. And I don't mean as a pastor, as just an, as a member of the church. How do we minister in a to a generation that oftentimes doesn't show much loyalty towards a particular local church? Yeah, I wish someone would figure that out, write a book, and then uh, maybe I could address it better with our people. But uh, I do think that some of it's just a weak ecclesiology. I mean, people for millennials that grew up in the church, they probably many of them did not grow up hearing a really healthy ecclesiology. So, in fact, the church um, marketed itself to the community. It was really all about catering to people's consumeristic tendencies. So uh, we, I grew up with the church as a place predominantly. So the ministers were basically the vendors providing the goods and services, and the people were the customers, and they would come. And some churches had better goods and services than others. And so, in fact the way it is a lot of times is I like the preaching at that place. I like the small groups at that place. I like the kids activities over there. And so it really is where are the goods and services best. And I think establishing meaningful membership in your church where you're communicating regularly that we are a people on mission together. I think the other thing is as long as the pastors and the staff hold the ministry instead of releasing it into the people's hands, uh, then people don't really feel like they're really needed here. They're just showing up to receive something and, well, I got it a couple of weeks ago and I'm good versus whatever God's going to do, he's going to do through all of his people. You have an important role to play here. He's gifted you by his spirit. You're actually in the game. You're not here to watch us move the ball down the field. We're here to equip you to move the ball down the field. Right. And the more we can release people into their own priesthood, so to speak, I think the more we're going to see people develop consistency and longevity at a place. Yeah, engagement. Yeah. Engagement is the key. Sounds no. like your chapters, man. You're yeah. already on your way. There you go. Yeah, there yeah. you go. We got all right. <laughs> so so uh, as we get ready to wrap up, 25 years, you know, you've been pastor of your church longer than 
a lot of millennials have been alive. I just want to throw that out there really fast. Uh, No comment comment (laughs) attached to that. Uh, So there might be people here right now that say, you know what, man, we would love to see millennials reach for Christ. We get excited when we hear stories about what's happening at Passion City. And we we love those kind of stories. But I'm just too old. I don't know if I can relate exactly, but people think that way. I, I just can't connect. I just can't. You know, they're not able to relate to me. I believe that's false. And you're talking yeah. about grandparents or spiritual oh. grandparents. How would you? How do you would have you a curse? coffee cup? Do you like coffee? If you like a cup of coffee, you can reach a millennial. That's very true. <laughs> that's a great word. If that's serious. Sit down at a table, have a cup of coffee, ask them some things like, "What's your name? <laughs> <laughs> what brought you to town? In Nashville, you're a player, writer, or singer." And that's usually where it goes. But, uh, but what brought you here? You know, where do you work? You like that? Where you, you know, who you dating? Those, those kind of, well, what football team you cheated? Just those kind of things. And, uh, uh, and next time you see them, stop. Call them by their name again. Ask them how they're doing. Text them. I know some of you say, I'm not going to do that. If you want to talk to your grandchildren, you're going to be on Facebook. You're going to be on uh, social media. That's where they are. Good. good or bad, that's where they are. If you want to talk to them, that's where they are. And could I speak to that? Yes, well, absolutely. I think for me, there are older people I want to connect with because they don't relate. Because I know you're wiser. Because I know you've experienced yeah. things that I've yet to experience. And so, if anything, the distance is good. <laughs> you know, like, you are in a different season that I want to be one day. Yeah. Like, you are, you've been a mother way longer than me. And so, I think I would not be discouraged by it. I would just welcome, just, right. just welcome people into your house. Yeah, we, we don't need anyone to be cool or savvy. Yeah, no. no. Oh, well, that's the worst thing yeah, you can We exactly. don't like fake. Yeah, show up in skinny jeans. You're pretty much done. Yeah, see ya. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Next. Let's thank our panelists uh, for our conversation on millennials. Thanks for tuning in to the ERLC podcast. Visit us online at erlc.com and join us next week for a discussion about pastors and cultural engagement.